Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest. This is the Wednesday edition. I'm Jeff Smelser in Exton, Pennsylvania. With me is Joe Works from Elmira, New York. Chase is not with us today. He is out of town, but we've got a treat. We've got Gary Fisher here with us as a guest panelist, and he's going to talk to us about the Gospel of Mark. Gary, I've got a hunch that you have taught Mark more than any person I know. Um, Probably. <laughs> so so we're just going to let you lead us through this. Joe and I will interrupt you from time to time. I'm not sure if you'll get annoyed with that or we'll interrupt you too much, too little. Um, but to our viewers, if you have questions or comments, especially about what we're talking about, especially about the Gospel of Mark, uh, anything related to what we're talking about, please do comment on the Facebook uh, page in the comment section, or you can use the chat feature as usual, or the Q, actually the Q&A thing there. And I'll try to keep a, a read on that. Chase usually does that for us, so I may not do as good a job of it. But let's just jump into it, Gary. Let's talk about Mark. So there's four Gospels to tell about the life of Jesus. And about 30 or 35 years ago, I started teaching Mark as the first thing I did when I taught somebody. Whoever I was presenting the Gospel to or whatever Christians I was studying with, almost every time we just started with Mark. And so I have probably taught Mark about as much as anybody I can imagine. Uh, several, probably a thousand times, really. Um, and I did that because there are some things about Mark that make it a good starting point. Mark uh, is pro uh, kind of portrays Jesus as a man of action. You see a lot of different events in Jesus' life. You see the word immediately all over the place as Jesus was going from, from event to event to event. Mark is not the place for a lot of long sermons. You could get those in Matthew not the place for a lot of parables. You can get those in Luke. Not the place for lots of long dialogue with his enemies and things like that, like you could get in John. But you just get a lot of snapshots of Jesus doing various things, always around the multitudes. And I just think it's great to be able to see Jesus in a concise way, uh, see a lot, a lot of the things that he said and did. And so I've just really enjoyed teaching Mark. So, so this is a question, it's maybe not most, the most important question to be answered. I think just what Mark does is important, but there's a lot of discussion as to why it's that way. And, and of course, some people say they think Mark was writing, especially for a Roman audience, and that somehow this kind of um, quick hitting style uh, would appeal to Romans. Not, not, don't need a lot of thoughts about that, but just do you have a thought about that? I really don't. I, I don't know who his audience was, but I do think it's really helpful, especially when somebody's first encountering Jesus, to be able to have something that's more direct and more simple. I love all the Gospels. There's wonderful things about every one of them in their own way. But to me, it's been easier to start with people in the Gospel of Mark. Um, you know, one of the things that I've tried to think about as I look at any Gospel is to think about the fact that Jesus said and did lots of things. I mean, John said the world could contain all the books to be written about Jesus if we were to conclude everything he said and did. So why did Mark choose the items he did to tell about Jesus and in the order that he did? So I've tried to look at Mark and think about what are some of the themes? What, what, what's the point of this chapter or this section or that section? And just tried to go through and understand basically the ideas that Mark was trying to communicate. For example, in the first chapter, you know, it starts one of the two paragraphs in Mark that isn't mostly focused on Jesus. It starts with the work of John the Baptist, who was preparing mm -hmm. the way for Jesus. And Mark prepares the way by telling us to repent 
and to know about the greatness of Jesus. He wasn't even worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. So that really shows you how great Jesus is. Then the father spoke after Jesus was baptized and said, this is my beloved son. So he emphasizes Jesus' greatness and authority. And you see fishermen who already knew Jesus had heard him preach and seen his miracles that he calls to follow him. And they immediately dropped everything to follow him. They responded to the authority Jesus had. Jesus is not a mere man. He's a man that if he says, follow him, you, you do it immediately. And uh, Jesus went to a synagogue in chapter one and uh, taught with authority and then cast out demon, a demon out of a man with the same word of authority that he used to teach with. And so he was showing his authority. And, and you see the leper who Jesus healed and he told him, don't tell anybody. And he went out and told everybody, <laughs> trying to honor Jesus undoubtedly, but well-meaning disobedience hindered Jesus's work. The lesson is be like the fisherman, do exactly what Jesus says when he says it, not like the leper that thought he had a better idea and ended up complicating what Jesus was doing. So obviously, like you say, the lesson is do, do what Jesus says. We don't necessarily have to understand why. It may be helpful if we understand why, if I'm the leper, maybe, but that heart of humility just does what Jesus says. But why do we see Jesus from time to time telling somebody, don't tell anybody? Yeah, he does that several times in the Gospel of Mark and then turns around and on one occasion tells a guy to go tell everybody. So I think that's a case-by-case -case basis here. It seems clear that Jesus didn't want to be thronged by a bunch of sightseers who were coming to see him work a stunt. He needed calm and he needed not a bunch of people crowded around him to be able to teach them effectively. So it really was hindering his work. He couldn't even get close to a major metropolitan area because, because there were so many people thronging him. I think that's the reason he says that sometimes. Other times he told demons not to announce who he was because I don't think he wanted their publicity. Yeah. You, you don't want the demons to... Uh, to be your evangelist. And uh, there were other times he told the disciples not to tell because they didn't understand it well enough to get it right if they told. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, in Mark 5, when he healed the man with the legion of demons and he wanted to accompany Jesus, Jesus told him, go, and, go back home and tell everybody the great things the Lord has done for you. And that's what he did. He wasn't in any danger of being too popular over in that district. They asked him to leave. So I think, I think it depends on the situation. Sometimes Jesus says tell, sometimes he says not to, depending on the, the context. Okay, good. So then chapter two and the first part of chapter three shows Jesus answering people's criticisms. And he's master at that. Every criticism they offer, he's just fan fantastic in dealing with. So the first story, I love this story, where Jesus has throngs of people crowded around him in this house and people outside the house trying to get a, catch a glimpse or hear a snatch of what he said. And, and here comes five more, four guys carrying a paralyzed man on a stretcher and they want to get into Jesus. They want him to heal the man. But of course, there's no way if you were a little agile fellow, maybe you could wriggle your way through the crowd, but there's no way you can get a guy in a stretcher in there. So we would have probably turned around and gone back home, but they did. They got creative. They went up on the roof and dug a hole in the roof and lowered the guy through that. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. You know, somebody probably owned that roof. <laughs> I can imagine Jesus and whoever's with him inside the house and, and Jesus teaching this, this debris falling down around them. It, he, does he just stop and wait and see what's coming or does he just keep teaching? <laughs> Everybody's kind of listening to him and looking up, listening to him, looking up. <laughs> you wonder, you wonder. And, and what do you see in those guys? 
you see such determination because they believe Jesus could heal that man. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were paralyzed and the guy inside that house could heal you, would you be okay with taking the roof off and repairing it later if he could, if he, if you could get to him so he could heal you? Well, yeah, if you were paralyzed, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. And if, obviously we need to have that same attitude toward Jesus. We need to get to him no matter what it takes, even if we have to take the roof off. But Jesus first told the guy his sins were forgiven, created quite a controversy because they said only God could forgive sins, not understanding who Jesus really was. And Jesus proves that he could do what they could not see, heal the, uh, forgive the sins by healing the man. And he got up and took up his stretcher and walked. And so Jesus is able to prove himself by what he did to heal the man. And just over and over again, they criticized him. They criticized him because he was eating with the low life. And Jesus said, well, that's who the doctor comes to heal of the sick people. You know, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then they criticize him for eating at the wrong time. He wasn't fasting like they did. And, and Jesus explains that fasting wasn't appropriate for the time that he was there. This was a time of joy. And uh, then they criticize him for uh, letting his disciples pick and eat grain on the Sabbath, they, thinking that that was working on the Sabbath. And then they were got really upset because he healed a man on the Sabbath who had a withered hand. And, and again, Jesus constantly has the right response. He's never ruffled. He, he says even some brilliant things, some really helpful things. Some of the best statements we have from Jesus are ones that he, he spoke when he was being criticized and scrutinized. He never cracked under the pressure. He never said anything unwise. And uh, just really amazing. So you see Jesus' authority, and then you see him handling the critics with with just great ease. You know, if you if I think sometimes it's when we are really not confident of what we're saying or how we're acting or or the position we're holding that we get the most defensive. Maybe when we're not confident that we really have a good reason, we get the most defensive and and uh, fall into the trap of, of speaking inappropriately. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't seem to have had that problem. It's amazing because you would think under such scrutiny and with such constant criticism, it would unnerve you and it would make you doubt yourself. But no, he's always confident. He knows what he's saying. He's calm. He's not bombastic. But he always says just the perfect answer that, that really frustrates his enemies even more, you know, because they, they don't have any response. Uh, th their response was to, in chapter three and verse six, was to plot to murder it, uh, which doesn't exactly answer what he's saying. The next big section of Mark, you see different people's reaction to Jesus. So you see him calling the 12, which were going to be his closest friends and those that he was going to send out later to spread his gospel. So he kind of mentored them. And then you see his family. We just didn't understand him. Jesus was thrown by the crowds, no time to even eat. And they went out to try to, you know, bring him back home by force to get some rest and relaxation because they thought he was too fanatical. It's amazing. People, you can be dedicated to anything but the Lord and people applaud it. If you're a big sports person and you work hard, you know, constantly in your sport, or if you're really good academically and you go and get a bunch of degrees or you're a great businessman and you work 20 hour days, everybody thinks it's great. But if you're really committed to the Lord, they wonder what, what kind of problem you've got. What, how, how could you be so fanatical? So that was kind of his family. And then the enemies were trying to ex explain away his casting out the demons by claiming that he did it by the power of Satan, which he proved was not even logical. And, and so you see Jesus was in a house with his disciples 
when his family showed up to try to, you know, take him away. And they said, your family's out there looking for you. And Jesus basically said, my family are the people in here who want to do the will of my father. He gave, gave his spiritual family priority over the physical family. And then went on to teach a lesson about this various sea soils that the seed falls in and people have different responses to him. So you see that the responses were very divided. Some were loyal to him, some didn't understand him, some opposed him. Uh, that's, that's always the way it's going to be even today. Not everybody has the same response to the message of Jesus. Yeah, not, not to throw you off track, but if I could just make a connection here between uh, his comments about his family here in, in Mark chapter three and verse 31 through 35, and then in Mark chapter 10, after he's talked about um, this rich man and how hard it is for somebody who is rich and trust in riches, apparently, to, uh, to, to be saved, to enter the kingdom of God. And the guy he's talking about is somebody that you think of anybody successful, this man is. And so the disciples seem a little bit stunned. Well, then who can be saved? And Jesus makes the point, well, it's not possible um, with men, but God makes it possible. And he goes ahead. And when Peter says, we've left everything and have followed you, what do we have? And Jesus makes this observation. He says, that uh, there's no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. And, and this is a point that I think ties in with what you were talking about in, in Mark 3, where Jesus points to his disciples, his spiritual family and says, this is my family. When somebody comes to Christ, uh, sometimes it creates a, um, a, a conflict with their earthly family or maybe even with earthly friends. And what, what you need to recognize, if you're coming to Christ, rather than trying to hold on to all those worldly connections that, that may be wanting, not wanting you to see the path you're going down, they may not want to come with you, is to embrace the spiritual family that you have. Um, God's people are a spiritual family, and, and if we could get this concept that Jesus is talking about here, I think that would be very helpful to our spiritual growth uh, in, in truly being, in coming out of the world, so to speak. That's exactly what you see in Jesus here. I mean, he, did, he didn't go with this physical family. He was with those who did the will of his true father, and we ought to see the family we've got in Christ, and that ought to be the ones we're closest to. Very good point. Of course, it doesn't mean that we cut off all association with people in the world. Jesus is still come to call those who he, he didn't come to heal the, the, how did he say it in verse 17, chapter two, they that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he would reach out to sinners and he's having dinner with the, with the tax collectors who are reviled as sinners. So it, it's not that Jesus is encouraging living a hermit life where all the Christians go live by themselves. But, but I think that there is this value of seeing those who are my family, those that I'm closest to, most strongly connected to, that's my spiritual family, not my worldly family. Well, I'm, I don't Amen. mean to, to take off. Take off right. That's well, good. I, Gary, if I, if I could jump in here. Um, sure. It kind of seems like as you've presented this, and, and I would agree, uh, you sort of have some themes, you know, chapter two and the first six verses of chapter three, these, these conflicts that are coming up, and then these family questions, spiritual family, physical family, 
do you see the book of Mark being written as, uh, thematically, you know, going through it um, as opposed to simply chronological then? Yes, I think so. I mean, that's not to say there aren't some chronological elements, but I do think that he's putting together stories that kind of fit with the points he's making as he goes through. And so as a result of that, then we ought to really be paying attention to, oh, it's not just that this happened and this happened, it's how are these things connected? Yeah, these aren't just random stories that he just collected. You know, he put them together in a way that we can see themes and ideas. And yeah, I think, I think that's helpful when you can see it that way. You just start in 435 and you've got a series of events where Jesus does what is humanly impossible. So they, the disciples, many of whom were fishermen, were with Jesus in a boat and there was a terrible storm and Jesus was sleeping. I believe the only time in the Gospels that he even mentions Jesus sleeping was when he was in a terrible storm in a boat. And uh, they wake him up in panic. And Jesus just says the word and the sea calms down and the wind stops and uh, they're fine. And who could do that? I mean, that seems overwhelming. And then there's this man who's a monster man. He lives in the cemetery. He's been gashing himself with stones. He's, he's naked. He's just a wild man. He's got, and we find out he has a legion of demons in him. No wonder he was like that. And they tried to bind him with chains and ropes and anything they could find. And he'd just break him. He had super, superhuman power. And Jesus cast the demon out of him, the demons out of him into some hogs that ran off the cliff. And he was perfectly well. You know, what the man, no one could, could tie up, no one could restrain, Jesus healed. Then there was uh, a woman who had a bleeding and she was uh, for 12 years spending money with doctors and none of them could help her. None of them had figured out what to do for her. And she'd spent everything she had. She came to Jesus, touched his clothes and, and Jesus healed her of something that no doctor had been able to do. And then there was this girl, 12 years old. Her father, who was a high official, had come to Jesus, asking him to come and heal her. But while he was delayed talking to this woman, the girl died. Jesus said, don't worry about it, just believe. And he went in and healed her and raised her from the dead. So Jesus does a series of four things that are humanly impossible. Still the storm, cast the demon out of the guy no one could chain up healed the woman that no doctor had been able to help and, and raised this little girl from the dead. And it just really shows you the greatness of Jesus. And then turns around the very next section, they reject Jesus back in his hometown because they couldn't believe he could do these wonderful things and teach all these things. So no matter what Jesus does, there are those who reject him. Every now and then somebody will say, you know, if only we could have lived in the first century when, when you could see miracles, then I could really have faith. And yet there were people then who saw the miracles and discounted them. You're exactly right. Yeah, there, it wasn't that everybody believed even then. And usually we like written proof of things more than we like, uh, you know, any, anything else. So we've got the written testify, testimony of those who were there. I think we've got excellent evidence. And it's a matter of the heart, a matter of the desire to, to believe. And so Jesus you know, takes the 12 and sends them out and then, you know, in pairs to try to spread the gospel more and kind of as an internship almost for them. He's going to depend on them after he's gone to spread the gospel. And so it's important for them to get some experience and they went out and preached that everybody should repent, which is the thing that everybody does. Herod hears about it, thinks it's John the Baptist raised from the dead and there's a flashback about what he did about with John. 
and they come back and it's kind of funny jesus wants some time with them to kind of debrief them but there's so many people multitudes thronging him that he can't so he gets in a boat with them goes to the other side of the sea and the crowd figures out where he's going and gets there before he he arrives and in uh, mark 6 34 when he sees the large crowd he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and so jesus taught them and in that occasion they were hungry and he managed to take five sandwiches and feed all 5,000 men plus the women and children with a basket full of leftovers for each of the 12 apostles. Just remarkable things that he did. And uh, large crowds following him, but a lot of them still not understanding. So, so you're, you're really doing a good job of kind of taking us through Mark and looking kind of the big picture and the flow of the text and, and the kind of the picture of Jesus that's being painted here. And, and, and I'm going to bog you down with a little detail here. Don't spend a lot of time on it. But, but this is, a, it, when, when it talks about how many were fed, the 5,000, it specifies 5,000 men. And of course, I always wonder why. And I just recently had a Bible study with a couple and they asked the same question. Why does it specify the men? And I don't know. It don't, you don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but any idea why they count the men? I mean, it's probably uh, easier than counting everybody be a smaller number there were still five thousand men so who knows what there were i have no idea i don't, I don't think there's a explanation for that given. Okay. All right. but, All right. but think about feeding five thousand men if they didn't even have any women and children five thousand men with five sandwiches and yeah. 12 baskets full of leftovers yeah, and, a, and one sandwich per thousand people <laughs> it's it's one of those miracles that'd be hard to fake you know magicians pull rabbits out of hats but they don't feed five thousand people with what they pull out of their hats no you know that'd be uh no. would be kind of radical yeah. So, uh, and, and again, there's lots of controversy about Jesus. You know, he doesn't follow the traditions of the Jews because he follows what God says. He makes a big distinction between men's teaching and God's teaching. And he's more concerned with spiritual purity than physical purity uh, and, and, and really challenges the thoughts and doctrines of the relig religious leaders of his day. They didn't, they didn't like it which, you know, that's kind of hard for us to believe. But Jesus was not, he didn't go along with the commonly accepted practices of the leading uh, rabbis and so forth. And I don't know that he would go along with the commonly accepted practices of religion today. You know, he, he believed in following what God said, not, not what men said. And uh, so he, he gets in some, you know, situations where, where people are really critical of him, but he continues to be faithful to, to the Lord and, and speaks very well. He, he wants his people to really hear him and see him properly. And, and his disciples are even struggling with that. They bring him a deaf mute uh, and, and Jesus heals him and, and then continues to work with the disciples who don't seem to understand or hear anything he's saying, you know, and, and then he heals a blind man in chapter eight. And it's really funny how he did it. This is the only case like this that I know of. But he, he spit on this blind man's eyes and then laid his hands on him and said, do you see anything? This is back in chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. And the guy said, I see men that look like trees walking around. You know, well, this once in a church where one of my really good friends was totally blind and had been his whole life. And he's a very sharp guy. And so I asked him, I said, Jimmy, 
if I could lay my hands on you and you could see men like trees walking around, how would you feel? He said, oh, I'd be thrilled. And I said to everybody else, and how would you guys feel if you were seeing men and they kind of look like trees walking around? Yeah. None of us, of course, who've had good vision would want that. No, we'd be going for <laughs> cataract surgery. <laughs> we would. Maybe we should anyway, but uh, at our age. But, uh, but, you know, that is just exactly how it was with the disciples. You know, they were seeing, but not seeing clearly. And, and they needed to continue to learn from Jesus and receive Jesus' blessing to see clearly. You think that's the point of his doing this miracle that way? I do. In verse 17 uh, of chapter 8, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Okay. I think his point is, you know, they, they, they were seeing men like trees walking around. The very next story, um, Jesus asked who people said he was and then who they thought he was. Mm -hmm. And Peter very accurately in verse 29 says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus, who's really starting to try to prepare the disciples for what's going to happen. In verse 31 says he's going to be rejected by the Jewish leaders and be killed. And after three days rise again. And Peter in verse 32, after having just said, you are the Christ, <laughs> took him aside and began to rebuke him. He didn't want to embarrass him in front of the other disciples and show him how he was wrong in front of them. So he took him off to the side to correct him. I had never noticed that, that it says he took him. I never pictured that as Peter taking him aside to correct him. I think I it is. That. Yeah. I think it shows his arrogance. I mean, you know, you wouldn't normally front somebody out with their mistake. You'd, you'd call them off to the side and say, you know, you need to, you know, go, go wash your face or whatever it is you're trying to correct. Yeah, and Joe so, takes, takes me aside all the time. Yeah, right. So, uh, so, I mean, what if we were content with just seeing men like trees walking and not really seeing clearly what Jesus is saying? We need to really be humble. We need to keep studying and keep, keep letting Jesus transform us so that we have a clear vision. Because a lot of people are just satisfied with, with what they're seeing, and it's not a clear picture of what the Lord wants them to see. It's interesting to me here where in verse 31, he's, he's telling them exactly what the future holds, how he's going to be killed and raised up on the third day. And, and he does this, I can't remember right now, if Mark mentions as many times that he says this as Matthew does, but you know, about four times, I think, in Matthew's account, before we get to the crucifixion, Jesus tells them this. Um, and yet we get to the crucifixion and the disciples don't seem to be prepared to understand what's going on. And you can see that here so much. I mean, in, in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, all three chapters, he has a very clear statement about what's going to happen to him. and gives details. And yet Peter tries to rebuke him. He, he warns them that they need to take up their cross and lose their life for his sake. And they continue not to understand. After the second time, <laughs> he tells them what's going to happen to him. Then in 933, he said, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. And he, he takes a child and says, if you want to be great, serve a child. You know, the greatest is the servant. But they're jockeying for position while he's talking about what's going to happen to him. And then in chapter 10, they do the very same thing. In chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, he gives a very lengthy explanation for him. Even when they hand him over to the Gentiles in verse 34, they'll mock him. 
spit on him, scourge him, kill him, and he rise from the dead. Very next thing, verse 35, James and John come to Jesus and say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you, which Jesus is not going to sign a blank check. He says, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. It's almost like they're, they're not listening. They're calling shotgun, you know? And yeah, it's like they don't get what Jesus is saying. And then verse 41, hearing this, the 10 began to feel indignant with James and John because they got there before they did. They wanted the same thing. Yeah. It's so much rivalry and competitiveness and seeking for glory and status and not understanding anything about what Jesus is saying is going to happen to him. It's a shame that there's no way possible for us to make any personal applications today with any of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, th these are, you know, 2000 years have passed, but these are the exact same uh, attitude uh, challenges that that we face. And, and I'm including myself in that. Uh, you know, these are the things that we struggle with, um, wanting power, wanting to be viewed as great, uh, feeling like our wisdom is superior. No, Jesus, you got that wrong there. I know you're the Christ, but, but you're mistaken. Um, uh, you know, just uh, all of those attitudes and, and uh, ego issues are, are, are struggles for so many disciples. Not, we're not even talking about people in the world. We're talking about Jesus' disciples in the text and, and even today. Um, uh, that's what makes the book of Mark so helpful to study is that everybody can, uh, anybody that's willing to, can see themselves in these stories. And not like what we point. see, but maybe that's the point. Yeah, I think so. And really, you know, there's so many stories, especially in 8, 9, and 10, where the disciples were just totally wrong or, or just not getting the point. And Jesus has to, you know, rebuke them and correct them and work with them. It's amazing Jesus had as much patience with them as he did. I think if we had people like this, we'd have uh, fired them and tried a new set or something. But Jesus continues to be patient with them, tells them exactly what they need to hear, but, but is patient with them. It's, it's interesting that in this context, in chapter 10, Jesus receives the children that the disciples thought he shouldn't receive. They're not important. He didn't end up with this rich young follower because he wasn't willing to do what Jesus told him to. He doesn't grant the request of James and John who want him to do whatever he says. But then in 46 and following of chapter 10, there's this blind beggar bellering out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I've been in large cities and places where there were beggars, even blind beggars that were hollering out alms for the poor and things like that. And it's kind of annoying. And they wanted him to shush him up. Jesus said, no, have him come here. He left his cloak, left his spot where he was begging, left whatever coins he'd collected. And Jesus healed him of his blindness and he started following Jesus. Jesus ends up with a blind beggar as his followers or children that he received and not this rich ruler and not these two disciples request to sit on, on chairs of glory with him. So what you really see is Jesus receives the humble people who most people look down on and doesn't receive the respectable people that most people would think would be fine Christians. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, like almost all the Gospels, a lot of the, this Gospel of Mark is devoted to the final week of Jesus' life. There's so much focus on all the things that happened leading up to his crucifixion, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. And obviously, 
the death of Jesus is such a focal point of the gospels and should be of, of our lives. We depend on that. It's amazing that Jesus came here and had those, the kind of attitude that he was willing to humble himself and let men do to him all the things they did and suffer and die on the cross for him. And uh, so it's, it's interesting to, to study these passages and see, see what Jesus did and, and his attitude. There's a lot of conflict in these last chapters between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And they are more and more determined to figure out some way of getting rid of him. And, uh, you know, they, they, they reject their Messiah. It's amazing how we can reject the ones God send, sends and receive the ones that are teaching the wrong thing. The, 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 the accounts of this last week and really all, all, uh, much of Jesus' ministry in, in the Bible do seem to draw a fairly bright line between the response of the religious leaders to Jesus and the response of the people in general to Jesus. And, yes. and, and, and so then you think about what is this saying to us that this, this picture that is painted for us of the, of the religious leaders of this day, this is the religious leaders of, of the nation of Israel. This is the, these are the religious leaders who, as Jesus says, sit in the seat of Moses. These are the religious leaders of at least ostensibly God's people. And yet they are pictured as the primary opponents of Jesus. Is there a lesson there for us today? I think there is. I mean, that's so much not what you would think. That's not what you would expect. And I think it says that even religious leaders can be proud and arrogant and self-willed and lead us astray. We really need to go back to the Lord. And it's often the humble people, the simple people, the people who are willing to trust and listen to Jesus, not the people who think they know a lot. And the people who have a lot of power and authority and have people honoring and glorifying them, that, that are the ones that we ought to, to hear and listen to. So I think it is, it's remarkable, and it's just uh, very counterintuitive. We, we imagine that religious leaders, we should always listen to them, all should, should always follow what they say. But Jesus certainly did not, and mm -hmm. was crucified by them. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's interesting, sad, that the Jewish leaders found a comrade in Judas, one of the 12. And uh, G Judas, for whatever reason, decided to sell Jesus out. You know, he was willing to accept some pieces of silver as the price of, of leading them to Jesus when he was just with a few people at night, where they could safely arrest him without the crowd riot. And uh, it's interesting, in chapter 14, you've got a contrast between what Judas did and a woman who comes to Jesus. In 14.3, that she has this vial of extremely costly perfume. They estimate it as being 300 denarius worth of perfume, which would be like 300 days wages. And I don't know much, how much you make a day, but if you make $100 a day, that'd be $30,000 worth of perfume. You know, I've, I've never touched perfume like that, but I understand there still is perfume of that nature that you could buy that expensive. If you did buy perfume like that, a drop would be plenty. And she just drenched Jesus with it. She poured it all out over Jesus to honor him. She was willing to sacrifice to honor and glorify Jesus, whereas Judas was trying to make money off of Jesus. Just such a beautiful attitude on her part. And again, some of them are saying in verse four, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. I would again say, isn't it interesting 
how they can see if you if you spend a lot for the Lord, you're a fanatic. If you spend a lot on sports, on academics, on your business, on on hobbies, on recreation, on vehicles, on boats, on yachts, on whatever, people think, oh, that's cool. But you spend a lot to anoint Jesus to honor him. Oh, what a waste. Shouldn't have done that. You know, I think it's interesting. John singles out Judas as the one who was complaining that this was a waste. And, and John tells us what his motive was. He was a thief and he kept the money bag. And if he figured if this ointment were sold and the money put in their collective funds in this bag, he'd have access to it. Matthew and Mark both paint the picture of it's not just Judas who's complaining, it's the disciples generally. And, and that makes sense to me. One guy starts complaining with an ulterior motive, but others chime in because, yeah, that's right, that's right. And they don't, they don't see the motive, but they chime in. But it's interesting to me that both Matthew and Mark tell that story immediately before telling us that Judas then goes out to, to betray Jesus. And I wonder if we're not supposed to see in that part of his motive that he felt um, put down a little bit, that he had been called out after he complains about this waste and then Jesus honors this woman and puts him in his place. Is that, is that part of his motive? Or did he see one potential source of income revenue for him? Uh, if I can't uh, get know. money from this, I'm going to get it this other way. Right. Going right. back to the religious leaders and the picture of them that we see, Pat comments uh, that in John 9, 34, those religious leaders thought they were too good to learn from the blind man. Religious leaders can be like that today. Of course, John 9 tells about a blind man whom Jesus gave his sight to, and and the religious leaders uh, weren't really ready to listen to him at all. Um, and, and so there, there, you know, there, there is, I think that's a lesson for a lot of people who are caught up in some religious movement. Um, don't trust, don't put your trust in men. Don't put your trust in men just because they've been trained in a seminary somewhere. It's, it is always interesting to me how, people do not realize how so many religious leaders today do not believe that Jesus was born of a virgin or that he was literally raised from the dead or that he actually did these miracles. They assume that their relig religious leaders believe all these things and their religious leaders often do not believe these things. And, and that kind of colors, uh, well, it, it tells you where they're coming from and it, and it explains why they don't always take the word of God seriously. But anyway, yeah, I mean, no, well, it takes humility to serve God. And so often when you're a leader, when you have a lot of credentials, it begins to go to your head. And that's a dangerous thing for us. So we need to have the simplicity and humility just to listen to Jesus and follow him. So, so Judas does end up betraying Jesus and, and leading the arrest party to, to arrest Jesus at night. It's, it's quite a, uh, quite a group, a lot of people. And, uh, they come and, and, and that night they tried Jesus before various Jewish groups, including the Jewish Sanhedrin Council, and they convict him, but they have no ability to, to execute him because they're under Roman rule. So early the next morning, they bring Jesus to Pilate, the governor, who's in Jerusalem for the feast. Wait, 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 wait a minute. You, you, you said that they couldn't do anything. They couldn't execute him. On the various occasions, they took up stones to stone him in John 10. What, what, why, why all of a sudden are we seeing this concern about not stepping out of their lane? 
Good question. I mean, uh, riot actions uh, happen, but I think they're wanting Jesus to be officially crucified and formally denounced. And uh, it would have been against the law for them to have actually executed them on, him on their own. So they, they go through the legal channels and get the Romans to crucify him. Do you think it has anything to do with the fact that their constituency was pretty much enamored of Jesus and they just soon somebody else be responsible for putting him to death? I can see that. Yes. And of course, God wanted Jesus crucified. That was well, the, obviously. Yeah, that's so that's his, his hands behind it as well. Yeah. But uh, but they do bring bring Jesus to Pilate and Pilate ends up getting pressured by them and gives in and orders his execution. And a really sad situation. I mean, you think about all that Jesus went through, the mockery, the pain, the, the, just the, the trial of all of that. And he did it for us. I mean, he didn't have to stay on the cross. He didn't have to let them do any of this. He was the son of God. He could have done anything he wanted. But he chose to submit to the Father's plan and to bless us. And, you know, it just shows us how much the Lord loves us and shows us how much we ought to be willing to give him in response. So all these stories are just really meaningful when you think about Jesus doing this with us in mind and going. Well, I'd like to back up just a little bit. I didn't hear you comment about 14, 51, and 52. Did I miss that? No, I didn't comment. So, you know, there's a lot of questions about who this man is and, and so forth, an extremely embarrassing situation. Uh, the text doesn't tell us who it is, and I suspect that that's going to be your answer. Um, but uh, I, I think I know his name. Um, uh, I think his name is Joe. Um, and I, I think that's the point of what we're supposed to see. When, uh, yeah, when, when, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, Jesus is arrested. They all left him and fled in verse 50. A young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. So it shows you how desperate he was. Yeah. You know, he leaves the sheet in their hand and runs off. These and, are his followers. And I also wonder, you know, uh, linen clothing is often associated with, through the Old Testament, with priestly clothing. Not, not entirely, but what I picture here is sort of this uh, you know, he's, he's casting off this thing, uh, this clothing, and nakedness is always seen as shame. When we abandon the Lord, when we flee from the Lord, then, uh, then nakedness and shame is associated with it. When we come to Jesus, we're clothed with Christ, clothed with righteousness. Uh, to me, this is just sort of a, a picture of, uh, of each person making the decision to, to leave the Lord. What would we have done had Jesus been arrested and we're afraid of them getting us next. Would we have stood with Jesus or would we have left the sheet in their hand to flee away? Uh, it really shows you their stampede to get away from him. Just hours after they said they'd always be loyal to him and they'd never uh, leave him. And uh, Peter even said he'd die for him. And uh, it's just easy to, uh, to say that when we're around people who believe. It's hard to uh, stand up for the Lord when we're around people who don't. And Peter has a hard time standing up for the Lord in this section. Yes, he does. Yeah, he uh, he ended up coming into the trial, and uh, they asked him if he wasn't one of the disciples. And three times he says he was not. He doesn't even know the man, he said. And then once the cock crows, he goes out and weeps bitterly. So the conclusion of Mark is, is Jesus was raised from the dead. You know, thankfully, the, his death and burial was not the end of Jesus' life. He, three days later, he was raised from the dead, 
and there were those who witnessed his resurrection. So we have strong evidence that the tomb was empty, there was no body in that, and there were many people who saw Jesus alive after his death. And so Mark ends on a positive note of Jesus' resurrection and uh, his telling people to spread the gospel all over creation that he that believes and is baptized shall be saved and the one who doesn't believe will be condemned. Well, Gary, thank you very much. Appreciate your taking us through the gospel of Mark today. Um, if there's a final word or just kind of a final summary statement, if you would want to characterize um, Mark's message, uh, leave us with that, and, um, and then maybe we'll get you back sometime. But appreciate you taking us through this today. Right, Joe? Absolutely. Do we, do we appreciate I, did, I, I just say read the book. It's great. How, how long do you think it takes to sit down and read the 16 chapters of Mark? Well, I haven't thought about it, but probably not much more than an hour. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. And thank you all Bye. for tuning in today. And next week, Joe, we've got, uh, what, what are we doing next week? I believe if I'm not mistaken, we have uh, John Weaver going to be talking about the book of Matthew. Uh, I need to go back and double check my uh, schedule on that. All right. But, uh, Lord willing, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>